I'm grateful to the Montana Historical Society for inviting me to be here to talk with you. I, the first time I came to this institution was in 1931. I was 10 years old. And from that time on, this has been one of my favorite places. And I'm 94 now. <laughs> uh, and I think all of Montana should be proud of this institution. It's, it's one of the great ones. And I've been to many of them. I'm here to talk with you a bit about a book, Witness the Spirit, uh, A Life Journey Unorthodox in the Extreme. There are three sections of it uh, called Movements in deference to part of my life that was spent in music. The first beginning in 1921 on ranches in both eastern and western Montana. Then 20 years as a conductor of symphony orchestras and 45 plus years working with and for traditional Native Americans. There's information about each of these worlds in a book that I haven't seen elsewhere. My first 10 years were on an open range horse ranch in eastern Montana. I loved its freedom and horses became iconic for me. I still miss them. In my adolescence, we had a, a, a cattle ranch in uh, western Montana, and I became addicted to the life. I loved it more, I think, because I knew it wasn't my destiny. The book begins with a description of my first horse at age four. I'll read part of it. No decent cowboy is anything without a good horse. The first one I called my own came with a name that may say, you may find ironic, engine. A pejorative, especially now in this age of enlightenment, just a name then, and I didn't, was too young to know any better. My grandfather traded for him at the turn of the 20th century with Sandy's Flathead Indians. Uh, I inherited him as soon as I could ride at age, alone at age four in 1925. Before him, my dad would sometimes lift me up uh, beginning at age three behind the candle of his saddle to ride on his horse, me hanging on to his shaft belt. Occasionally, he would forget I was there and ride a bit recklessly, uh, and my legs would get pinched by saddle skirts. Injun was pure Mustang, descended from horses that had escaped from conquistadors in the early 1500s, forever changing the cultures of Plains Indians. A solid bay, small, maybe 800 pounds, with hooves so hard we never had to shoe him. My, my folks didn't have a saddle small enough to accommodate me, so I learned to ride bareback, which is actually the best way to learn balance and to become one with the horse. If I fell off, which I did often, uh, engine waited patiently. If there was a stump or something, I'd jump on and uh, climb on and jump on his back. If not, I grabbed his mane and shimmied up his front leg. We fit each other. I loved him. Engine and I were inseparable until age took its toll. The legs that had carried me wherever I wanted to go began to stiffen. The heart that cared enough to wait for me when I fell off or tolerated any action in my any serious brought on began to weaken. 
in the last months, I could no longer ride him. But we cared for him until one day he could not get up after lying down. My grandfather came and mercifully released him from a bodily existence that has harmed him well and that the memory of which is embedded deeply in my heart. Even at age seven, death was not a new experience for me. On the ranch, death was a natural thread in the fabric of life. Inge's death was much harder than most, and I mourned his passing like a member of the family, which in a way he was. Looking back, I wonder what name his Indian trainers gave him. I would have liked to use it out of respect. The first movement continues with stories of my growth as a rancher. Music began to take over in high school. I entered the University of Montana School of Music after graduation. World War II interrupted the schedule during which I married my high school sweetheart in 1945. After graduation, I went to Billings and organized the Billings Symphony. It didn't look promising. The school music supervisor told me that, uh, that the climate wasn't right in Billings for a symphony orchestra. It had been tried and failed, and that I should forget about it. It would take a tremendous organizer to build a symphony orchestra, implying that I was not the person. But a year after moving to Billings in 1950, the Billings Symphony had its first concert and an organizational structure that still stands after more than 60 years. After three years in Billings, I was invited to be one of 10 conductors in the first conductor symposium with the Philadelphia Orchestra and its conductor, Eugene Ormandy. Since it was the first of its kind, uh, critics from New York Times and up and down the East Coast were there. The second movement begins with the description of the event. I'll read a little of it. If Anne had been there, she would have held her breath. She would have been nervous for me. She would have seen the audience of, of classical music critics and conductors behind me. and would have seen the 100-member Philadelphia Orchestra on the stage waiting for me. When the introduction was made at the Academy of Music in Philadelphia, because this was the first of, he had the names of all 10 conductors in a container. Turning to me, he said, pick one. Against all odds, I picked my own name. <laughs> I would be first. In that instant, I realized the reality of what I let myself in for struck me. In my first encounter with a world-class orchestra and a world-famous conductor, a hall full of critics, and auditing conductors sitting on the stage apron, I would be the opening act. I didn't sleep at all at night. Part of it was spent with the scores Ormandy gave us, and part of it with worry. And when I entered the Academy of Music the next morning, I saw the hall filled and the magnificent Philadelphia Orchestra waiting for me, intimidating. And when my name was called, I walked up to the podium without a trace of the anxiety I felt in the night. I didn't even have the butterflies that are inevitable before public performance. I was calm and collected, which now seems surreal. 
I had the keys to Ormany's Ferrari. Now it was up to me to prove that I could drive it. But when I bought the downbeat for Barber's Adagio for strings, nothing happened. No sound. My life flashed before me. As if in a nightmare, I had no idea what to do. The baton was up, and I decided to give it a release gesture to get it down. But in a split second, before I could do anything, the most glorious sound and most welcome sound I've ever heard in my life emerged from the Philadelphia string section. I was later told that the delay resulted from Ormandy's European beat. As I took a seat in the auditorium, Ormandy came back to me, took my hand, and said, I put my faith in you to become a great conductor. It was like an anointment from God. My life had changed. Ormandy became my mentor. About a year later, I received notice that the Springfield Symphony Orchestra in Western Massachusetts was seeking a conductor. I appointed just, I, I applied just for the practice. Springfield is the economic and cultural center of Western Massachusetts with some of the best prep schools and private colleges in the country around it. Surely, no one from Montana had a chance. Then I got a call that I was among those being considered. I still thought it was hopeless. Then another call that I was one of seven. Then, a call, then one of three for final interviews. I was the youngest. But against all odds, I got the position. There had been many applicants, some from Europe. I called my wife in Montana, telling her that she'd be a New Englander. My dad was standing nearby, and his eyes filled with tears. Maybe from pride, but also maybe because the son and his wife, who had been at his side in good and bad times, would now be a couple thousand miles away. Now that I'm in advanced age, I can understand how he felt. I'm lucky. My daughter and her family live next door. Anne and I moved to Springfield. I had a lot of catching up to do in terms of repertoire for a position or you didn't have to be the Boston Symphony, but you better be a reasonable facsimile. I went to New York weekly to study with Julius Hereford, a Princeton University professor who was, a, who was one of the best musicians and finest human beings I've known. I did summer study also in uh, Europe, Paris, and London. I conducted in Massachusetts for almost 15 years, years of my greatest spiritual growth. Music, called the universal language, is open to everyone for physical and emotional responses up to the highest spiritual insights, the latter coming from music considered supreme by generations of people. Classical music opens windows to common humanity, common longing for connection to each other and to forces beyond us. Connection. It says, the real power in the universe is love. The Beethoven Ninth Symphony is considered a, a testament to universal brotherhood because of the choral texts. But all great music does that. My orchestra was like a miniature UN. Musicians from Asia, Europe, South America, Canada, 
and the United States, men and women. Everybody focused on musical creation and took the best efforts of each and to which each was critical. Racism, unthinkable. Chauvinism, unthinkable. Violence, unthinkable. Connection, complete. And at its core, stripped of any triteness, is love. Not the kind symbolized by a cupid with a bow and arrow, but the kind that's an overpowering sense of connection on levels above the functional and pragmatic. It's a confirmation of the miracle of life which unites human beings into one family and makes all other life our relatives. It rescues us from narrow concerns for self and those close to us, allowing us to see ourselves in others and value common goodness above division. Everyone with the right heart emerges changed a little, and the long-term effect is compounding. The book is about stories that lead to that kind of experience, not only in music, but in vastly different areas. Almost every summer, Ann and I return to Montana for renewal and to breathe Montana air. I studied scores and visited the Indian reservation. I'd grown up around Indians, having ridden with Blackfoot cowboys in my teens. One summer, some Blackfoot friends invited me to go with them to a blood Indian medicine camp in Canada. I jumped at the chance. We arrived when they're setting up camp, probably 60 teepees, with three big ones in the center, hooked together for a large gathering. There were a lot of horses, which made me feel at home. We were guests of the chief, Frank Redco, and his son-in-law, Pat Weaselhead. I was the only non-Indian in camp. It was a spiritual gathering, revolving around aspects of creation and being thankful for what were given in nature. I found people 180 degrees removed from their image in the non-Indian world. Respect for all life and the right of all life to exist. A society that considers all life connected and important to the whole. They believe human beings are responsible for each other and for all life because of the gift of intelligence. Framing these values is spirituality, the depth and breadth of which I had not encountered. I saw a worldview evolved over millennia containing elements critical in a changing world. A society trampled underfoot by so-called manifest destiny without any understanding or feeling for the magnitude of that destruction. For the first time, I saw epic tragedy and I came away changed. The camp also was, provided my first experience with paranormal events, phenomena outside the purview of science, defying our concepts of physical and tangible laws. They're described in the book, and I won't repeat them here, but they shook the foundation of my concept of reality. I realized that everything I had learned was only part of cosmic reality 
and I had witnessed a far more dramatic part within the confines of a society we ignore. I left the camp knowing I had to do something about the ignorance of the non-Indian world about the people we displaced and basically destroyed in the process, and to help them keep their spiritual perspectives alive. The book describes a harrowing process through which that was accomplished. The Indian section of the book begins with these words. We don't see any spirituality in your world. We don't see any spirituality in your government, your commerce, your education, your religion, anywhere. We think we can help you, meaning my society. Start and startling statements made at a meeting of 35 traditional elders from the four directions called by me at the Missouri headwaters in 1977, the first of several meetings that resulted in our two circles. The words identified what to them is a root cause of Indian, non-Indian conflict, incompatible worldviews, theirs having a spiritual base, ours a material base. Since the concept of a spiritual base for any of these areas is nebulous, I'll close with an example of, of one, of their spirituality in one, government. Uh, which they say should be the highest form of spirituality. I'll use the model of the Six Nations whose governments are still intact after countless generations. The Six Nations are Mohawks, Oneida, Onondaga, Cayuga, and Seneca. Iroquois society is structured around clans. Each clan has a clan mother, a chief, and a sub-chief. The clan mothers from each of the six nations are the Supreme Court. They're a matrilineal society. The six nations are in upstate New York and central New York and in southeast Canada. Each nation has a circle of chiefs representing clans. The Grand Council consists of chiefs from all six nations. Chiefs are chosen by the clan mothers. When there's a vacancy in, in any circle of chiefs, the clan mother in the clan whose vacancy it occurs makes a choice. She's walked to the young men since childhood, and she puts up the one that's best in her opinion to fill a vacancy. The candidate appears first before the clan. If anyone has anything negative about him, it's brought up there. There are a few set rules. No blood on his hands, no crimes against women or children, among others. Next, it goes to the nation's circle of chiefs. Again, he's subject to any issue against him. If he passes that, it goes before the Grand Council of the Six Nations. With their approval, he's ordained a chief. It's a rigorous process in which character, quality, and leadership are the chief concerns. It's a consensus of all the leadership of the Six Nations, not a vote. Chiefs are given tenure, life tenure, as long as they sit on behalf of all the people. If they begin doing things for themselves or for a few, they're warned. 
three times by the clan mother. If they persist, they're taken down. It's called dehorning because deer antlers are symbols of their position. Symbolically, the blood runs in their eyes and the people no longer see them. They're ostracized, drastic. Doesn't happen often, but it's there to be used. They say, this process raises the best through whom government becomes the highest form of spirituality. Conversely, they say, we often raise the greediest and that our government is a tug of war among special interests. Traditional Native Americans are a remarkable human family. I'm a better person for having been associated with them. 